science is so non-judgmental. You know, it's not saying you're good, you're bad. It's saying this is how your brain is developed and this is why your brain works this way and your brain works that way. And when you get to that point, you remove a lot of the blame culture and the distrust. I'm John Fitzgerald, host of the Cord Podcast. I'm curious about the changing world of work. I want to have conversations that will help us all become future ready. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of The Cord. And uh, today I'm joined by Clive Highland. And I'm thrilled to be joined by Clive because uh, he's a thought leader and multiple author on the whole area of leadership, high performance, corporate strategy. He's written three books, and his latest book is The Quantum Way. Um, Clive and I met at a neuroscience for coaches program back in 2013, it was, when Clive asked that pertinent question at the end of the first day, anybody <laughs> going for a pint? And uh, since then, we have, um, we've known each other and uh, we have discussed many different topics on the area of neuroscience and people change. Uh, that's You're very welcome, here, John. Clive. And it's, it's critical people understand this is all about alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, us Celtics. Yeah, exactly. uh, it's, a, it's an international language for Celts, right? <laughs> yeah. So Clive's a proud Welshman and has the unique distinction, Clive, I'm going to embarrass you, that you have represented Wales in the over 60s international Absolutely. walking football team. So I never knew a walking football uh, existed un until yeah. you shared that with me. So oh, tell me a little yeah, bit brilliant. about that. Lovely community, really. All these guys who think their sporting days have finished long ago. And then we rediscover this uh, form of football, which is better suited to the older groups, you know, where we don't quite, quite kick as much out of each other as we used to, uh, but we still get the fun of the game. So, yeah, it's brilliant. And there's a great bunch of lads involved. And I'm sure fascinating as a, a proud Welsh rugby supporter and uh, a Welsh football supporter as well to wear that uh, your country's uh, yeah, of course. jersey. Yeah, I, I'd do it for yeah. tiddlywinks if I had to. <laughs> Very good. So on the podcast, what I really want to um, get into at the start of each of the sessions is to understand mm -hmm. you as a person, because quite often when we meet the executive in coaching sessions, there is that presenting person. And really about your formative years in South Wales and growing up in a mining town. And just tell me a little bit about your history as a in childhood and where you formed your values and uh, and etc. Yeah, well, no, you know, John, you had to get me on a podcast to talk about myself, didn't you? Because I can't <laughs> I can't avoid it now. So. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll keep it brief, brief, but hopefully relevant. Um, you know, if you picture, it's very much a mining community that I was brought up in in Wales. You know, mining had a big impact on my family, you know, and I lost both. Uh, my father lost a brother and um, I lost my granddad through it, you know, through either illness or, or incidents. Um, so it was very much a community which was tough, you know, uh, but looking out for each other. Yeah. So it was, um, I guess, most of all, I learned to be streetwise. Um, in, in particular, and I don't mean in the modern urban sense, you know, what I mean is that you learn to negotiate with characters that are quite strong. <laughs> and it so happened that in my age groups, you know, when I was a young lad, I think a lot of them were older than me. So I had to learn to use something other than physical presence to cope with these lads. And I, it gave me a, a great 
foundation in a strange sort of way for life, you know, because I guess it's meant that I haven't been unduly intimidated by, by challenges. Um, but e- equally, being aware of my limitations, you know, you don't take on an eight-foot guy in a fight, right? So, yeah, <laughs> there are limits to how far you go. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. that was the childhood piece and growing up and having yeah, to exactly. compete yeah. for space and uh, and develop, I suppose, skills to uh, yes. to survive. And we talk about survival in, in the modern world. And then I suppose you progressed from there. And that wasn't, uh, I'm sure, an easy journey. No, no, well, I mean, it, like going on to university and all that. I mean, it was still unusual in those days. There were very few people that um, mm. went to uni, um, uh, certainly in the valleys. And it was, that had to be negotiated as well, I think, because I didn't want to lose my friendships. And there was a great danger that I could have been seen as some, you know, uh, intellectual nerd or whatever, uh, which I never was in my behavior. You know, I was always out there doing sport and that sort of stuff. But I, but I could have lost some of the friendships. But actually, <laughs> what makes me proud is the fact that a lot of my friends from that time who didn't get the university were proud of me. And, and, you know, that means I got something right. But more importantly, it says what great people they were. So, you know, friendships, I think that was another important, important part of my value system. Mm. So social connection was very important to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, very much and, so. Yeah. Much and then you went into HR, was it? Yeah, and, yeah that's yeah. what started. So the, the link there was really, and it'll follow throughout the podcast. I've always been fascinated by people, you know, why exactly, I'm not sure. But um, therefore, to me, starting in HR was a good start, you know, because I thought I can influence the way that people uh, are led, behave and are developed, etc. It seemed like a natural starting point. And interestingly, then Mm. that transition from HR to CEO, because obviously the work that we do, we're involved in lots of career transitions. And it's not a common one that people transition from, I think it was HR to COO Mm. to CEO and describe those transitions and how hard it was maybe for somebody coming from a HR background to be seen in a business sense as a corporate leader? Yeah, I think what it was, I'd always, no, let's put it this way, I never never confined my contribution to a narrow definition of HR. I'd always been prepared um, to get stuck into business discussions as well. You know, meaningful, I don't mean for the sake of it. So um, that avoided Mm. too narrow a tag. And what it meant was that there were certain people that, spotted that in me and thought that I could contribute more widely. Um, and I guess I had, you know, some people would say enough arrogance or enough self-belief to sort of think, yeah, I can do a better job than, uh, than a lot of the people I'm advising. <laughs> so, you know, and that, that was right in some ways, but wrong in other ways. But, you know, I thought I got to have a go at this, you know, rather than just sit on the side. And it was right for me. So with the right people around me, I did have a go. Yeah. And maybe that was your streetwise stuff coming from uh, yeah, your childhood, you know, that you were yeah. willing to have a go and you weren't boxing yourself into a job title. Yeah, exactly that. You know, I was always up for it, you know, um, and rarely turned down opportunities um, that were presented to me. So then you moved to a CEO position. And for anybody who's listening as a CEO, moving into that position for the first time, what were your learnings from serving as a CEO and leading an organization and taking on the responsibility for many people? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there were a series of steps. I didn't step straight into a CEO role, but I went into a various senior management roles, typically in corporate organizations, because I think I was recognized as being a very good generalist. You know, clearly, I didn't have a technical background or a marketing background or a finance background. 
Um, but I seem to be pretty good at, at getting the best out of people. And therefore, I was given those sort of roles. And, you know, there was a hell of a lot of learning involved. Um, you know, I ended up with an organization at one stage of about 1,500 people as, as their CEO. Um, so that was a big responsibility. And I, th I think for me and my style, being a generalist, I had to have very good people around me who understood the business better than I did, mm. you know, frankly. You know, my job was to uh, orchestrate that stuff and to develop and keep the team moving forward. Um, and it was quite a journey, you know, over five years in particular, where we made serious acquisitions, sold off parts of the business and totally reshaped it. So strategically challenging. Um, and there was massive learning. And there were bits about it I enjoyed and there were bits about it I didn't enjoy. And then, you know, when that was over, you know, when, when there was a sell-off, obviously, of, of that business, the typical yeah. thing is to move yeah. on to another business, but you took an, a different road. Yeah, it didn't sit comfortably with me. The, the business that bought us wanted to take, um, you know, the business I'd been running in a different direction. And to me, there was no credibility in that. I couldn't suddenly turn, turn around to the troops and say, right, we're going in a different direction now, and I believe in it. That didn't make any sense. Um, and I think, yeah, you know, I wanted to get back to my roots, this roots of let's go back and have a look at people again. You do that as a CEO, of course you do, but your time is so limited. And to have the scope to go back and really take a fresh look at people was was really important for me. And um, it's like fate played a hand as well, because I did, you know, pitch in for a couple of corporate jobs. And there were two big jobs that I came second for. And I think they and I sensed when it came to the crunch, I didn't want to do it again. You know, I wanted something different. So I ended up then um, picking up this role, which took us into the neuroscience space, ultimately, which was to go and work with a business that was researching stress and, and high performance um, for a period of time. So the neuroscience story picks up there. So for me, it was like, right, let's get back to what I really yeah. enjoy. You know, being there, done, it, done that with the, um, the business stuff, got a lot of learning from it, but don't really want to do it anymore. Interesting how being unsuccessful for a role can lead to you finding oh, and following your yeah, yeah. and your passion. That happens absolutely. over and over again for people. You know, they think it's a huge disappointment, but was it really what they wanted? Yeah, it's so clear to me because I'd done all the formal interviews and uh, I was in clear pole position for this particular role, a big job. I won't mention the organization, but they're still around now and they're big. Um, and uh, I just went for dinner with them and they knew and I knew ultimately my heart wasn't in it. It was yeah, like yeah. I ticked all the boxes, but it was I, there was a bit of me saying, Highland, do you really want to do this again? You know, and I didn't. So it was yeah. like mutual relief in the end to think, oh, thank God I'm going to make a decision because they've changed their mind. And they did. And they were right. Yeah, I was reading about an organization recently and one of their interview strategies is to actually go out to dinner with the family mm. uh, of, mm. of the people that they're going to put into a CEO position. And yeah. you get to understand what the dynamic is like and yes. you get to understand a lot more about them as people. Yeah. And I suppose people is where I want to bring it to is yeah, neuroscience and the individual. And, you know, neuroscience is such a vast topic, understanding how the brain works. And from your perspective, I, you share a very interesting history of the brain and how it evolved. And uh, maybe you might just bring us through that, Clive. Um, well, I guess what I'm going to try to answer here is the question like, why neuroscience in the broadest sense of the word? Okay? Yeah. Because I, like a lot of people in business in particular, you know, most of our education was psychologically influenced. Yeah? 
And that was fine. But certainly I found as a CEO that I'd got bored with it. It was the same old stuff being repackaged. You know, there was a load of stuff that was created much earlier in my career. And I was very lucky to, to have you know, spent time with some real big global players. Um, and n- there was nothing that could match that. So I was looking for something that was inspiring and that became neuroscience. And, and the reason for that was it, it sort of destroyed some of the myths that we created for ourselves and opened up a whole new level of understanding. Um, and, you know, for, for just the context for people, of course, is that, you know, psychology flourished in the last century um, and obviously is still valuable today. And But you don't hear of breakthroughs in, in psychology now. It's all about refinement of practice. And neuroscience has come along now as a next level of understanding. So in, the, in, in that last century, we could only theorize about what was going on in the brain because, you know, we didn't have the, the technology to look inside live brains. We could just cut them up after people died which is a bit limiting, right, for a coaching experience. So um, so with the advent of things like functional MRI scans, which started off then a whole sets, all sorts of sets of um, imaging technology, we were able to look at what's happening in the brain. So that's really only been happening in, in our world since about the 90s. And in that, well, 20, 30 years, it's been incredible, the amount of understanding that's, you know, developed right across the globe around this stuff. So it's still an emerging science, but, you know, it's astonishing what we are learning. And when you come across that stuff, it's like the old stuff is no longer good enough. You know, so for me, it's uh, I, I'm basically, I suppose, on a mission to try and explain this as best I can because it's given me a whole new perspective on life and is so relevant in all situations because it's about life. And obviously, we'll we'll carry on that story. So the the life forms, yeah. And and you know what's interesting that people don't realize is the body was there before the brain. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so it's so I say that, on that so journey. often. Yeah, I, I say it so often because people there's these great implicit assumptions that you know the brain calls all the shots, and it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, it only came along later. We started as individual cells, became reptiles, eventually became mammals, and then became human beings. And to understand that history helps us understand what triggers certain behaviors in us and you know, what emotions, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really important to get into that stuff and recognize that our intelligence system is much more than what's going on in the brain. The brain's amazing, but so is the heart and so is the gut, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And those four elements that make up your, your discussion on the brain and your understanding of it. And how that's so important for us now, especially when we're having to deal with so many challenges from a resilience perspective and getting through COVID and so on and so forth. So, so just, I suppose, emotions were never as um, impacted as they are uh, in this time. And, and just explain to us how, how we might be reacting to the environment we're in right now, from your yeah. understanding. I think the platform explanation, first of all, is, you know, what neuroscience is exposed for me is just how subconsciously we are driven. Um, so we know, for instance, probably only about 5% of our behavior is, is consciously chosen, you know, equally only about 5% of decisions are made in a genuinely objective space. And we don't have time to back up the science on that now, but it is, that's not an opinion. It's, you can track what's going on in the brain. 
Mm. So this is about people getting below the surface and understanding that some of the psychological concepts that we relied on are no longer reliable. Some of them are brilliant, right? But it's, that's part of the learning process. So getting to grips with things like emotions and instincts are fundamental if we want to open up a better understanding of ourselves. And I think that's vital because so often we disappoint ourselves or we find ourselves in situations where, you know, we know they're not getting the best out of it, out of us. So what is it then about our environment? What is it about us? We need more reliable tools and neuroscience is starting to present those. And so, you know, I have in my own thinking put together all this neuroscience stuff that I've been involved in and created this model which really looks at instincts, emotions rational thoughts and reflective thoughts because again they're different ones detail the others big picture and it's understanding our blend in all of us you know that we've typically been taught certainly in the business world to leave our emotions at home you know the essence in the past was very much because i think people who were running business at that stage had no basis to get into grips with emotions it was all about leave those aside, just leave those at home because we can't deal with them. And when you look at the more subtle influences, you can trace it through science, you know, like Newtonian classical physics, first of all, had a big impact on leadership thinking because it was all about control, you know, understanding units of control. And that fed its way into Taylorism and factory management. And basically, primarily, a lot of organizations still try to run their operations as factories. You know, people are treated as factory units and are controlled because the assumption is uh, no, no trust. And that is so crazy. You know, we're getting into the quantum organization discussion because the people who don't feel trusted cannot give their best. So it's it's all that sort of tangle. But leaders evolved, didn't they, uh, in those organizations to climb Absolutely. the ladder yeah. without without maybe trusting anybody? Yeah, you know, and, and yeah, I can relate to myself. You know, I was no um, guardian angel. It basically, you know, I hope I did some things well and I used to get good feedback, right? But I was still quite territorial because it was almost a case of once you got something, you have to fight to hang on to it because that was the corporate world, you know? So there was an assumption of distrust and most relationships that were that flourished in those organizations were despite them. You know, mm -hmm. people were expected to fit into organizational needs. Should be the other way around, you know? We should have organizations that support individual needs. Which, which all great leaders should do. But traditional thinkers will be scared by that, you know? Yeah, and, and obviously we know that lots of managers and leaders are more comfortable with task and data and Absolutely. results and outcomes. And maybe that was in lots of ways due to male-dominated cultures. Absolutely. And, yes. You know, now we're seeing more females come in to leadership yeah. positions and maybe even, you know, speak about the difference between female and, and male leadership from your perspective, from a neuroscience perspective. You're trying to get me in trouble here, John, aren't you? <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, this is the diversity subject. And it's it's absolutely, diversity is much more than any one aspect. You know, diversity in nature is the wider gene, gene pool. Okay, You know, why did we start off as male and females? You know, we started widening the gene pool because that gives us broader choice. And that principle works all the way through, whether you're talking ethnicity or gender. You know, we need all the best choices available at the leadership table that we can. And when we confine ourselves to a particular model or stereotype of what a leader looks like, we are limiting our opportunities to grow. 
So to me, this is all about, you know, get all the choice, get all that mix of talent around the table that best supports what you're trying to achieve. And one of the things I love about neuroscience is all our brains are the same color, right? Actually, when you look at the gender differences in the brain, our brains are virtually the same. And what differentiates our brains is simply the way that we're developed in life. We're taught to be female or taught to be male. And that causes a lot of missed opportunities, you know, because we box ourselves in. And these principles of getting out of the boxes are what's important here. Because if we give each other and ourselves permission to be broader and bigger than we are, then we'll all benefit from it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm I'm just thinking about performance reviews and how that boxes people in and this nine box method and how we've evolved this whole, uh, I suppose, performance management culture within organizations almost is in conflict with people being at their best and having the freedom and autonomy to to, to thrive in, in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can. I think most of us can relate to the performance appraisal experience, you know, where the first thing you want to know is anything negative, you know, <laughs> and, that, and that's the survival brain kicking in, right? Because if we can't survive, then we can't thrive. So it's a natural response. So we, hopefully we can breathe a sigh of relief and nobody said anything too bad about us. But if they have, we want to know who it is, right? Now, what yeah, does that yeah. do to build trust and, and create permission to experiment as human beings? You know, we, we, it's, I'll make the point, we are designed to grow, all right? This is not an opinion. If we weren't designed to grow as human beings, we would never have evolved. We would have said, this is it, we're here, we're safe, like a crocodile in its environment, we'll stay yeah. here. Nothing else we need to do. But we can't do that. We're designed to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Now we're pushing the boundaries of the universe, you know, not just the globe. And when we tap into that as organizations, we can open up so much more. And again, there's a science the science behind that it's not an opinion and you mentioned trusted triangles in your book the quantum way and i thought that was fascinating because obviously from a coaching perspective when we're in coaching triads that's quite often the the formula that we use but just explain to people what you see as trusted triangles and how they can impact performance yeah well so often you know um we leave relationship challenges till they've too late till they started to develop negatively and we end up with things like mediation and the whole point behind this is sort of saying look we all have different communication styles and so often a, a, a relationship can become a problem not through intent but because of misunderstandings we just don't get each other so we drift away and then we the fear impulse starts coming in and we start distrusting people so the whole idea behind trusted triangles is that everyone in the business, in my opinion, should have a level of understanding of things like coaching and facilitation. And I mean everyone, okay? Now that takes time for a big yeah. organization. Not trying to make them into four. And it's not a comfort zone for people. No, it's not, okay? So so basically it's like, if, if you and I were working together and it was critical that we performed well together and we weren't, we both knew it, this is an opportunity to go and say, okay, let's get one of the other guys or women in, in order to say, Right. Let's um, let's get this uh, a facilitated discussion around this. Somebody who can help us at this early stage to create a better communication and relationship plan going forward. Okay, that's the yeah. principle, and it's it's almost like you sometimes you're too locked in to your own perspectives, and you need somebody to lift it out 
to lift both sides out of that, not to judge and say this is the answer, but just to, like a coach does, you know, create the safe yeah. space to get things to a point where they're clearer. It's yeah. as simple as that, really. But obviously, it, what it challenges then is you've got to have trust in that organization. So everything on the cultural side starts with building trust. And once you've got that, there's so much you can do. So, so as, as a senior leadership team and building trust, how do you, when you, you know, work with organizations and help them on that journey, where do you typically start and how do you, you know, look at a culture and assess it from a trust perspective? And, uh, you know, how do you, I suppose, facilitate that process? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Typically, uh, I will coach business leaders, um, you know, presidents or, you know, uh, CEOs, that type of stuff. And I've been lucky to be able to do that on a global basis. So um, I think there are a number of levels. One, the people that you deal with, you can sense that immediately. You know, first of all, you ask questions, right, of the people and, and they give you a narrative. But equally, you have to form your own response around that. But if you create a safe space, you know, most people will be honest with you. They, they're talking to a coach for a reason. You know, yeah. they want to change something. But equally, there are, you know, there are stuff you can use in bigger organizations around data surveys and things like that, that type of stuff, where clearly you need machinery to help you bring that information to where you want it. You know, and that's a different discussion. But it has to be, you know, I don't spend time with people who I have to convince. And I don't mean it arrogantly. It's just you know, I haven't got enough time. I'd rather in my life work with the people that are already looking to change and they know they need something different. So what I then do is, again, is like create that space to get the issues on the table. And where the science is, is so non-judgmental, you know, it's not saying you're good, you're bad. It's saying this is how your brain has developed and this is why your brain works this way and your brain works that way. And when you get to that point, you remove a lot of the blame culture and the distrust. So people then, they've almost got a new starting point. Yeah. You say, okay, so let's start again, understand our own styles, understand your styles, and start building a new understanding of how we move this culture forward. And I find, you know, in my experience, most people know there's something better and they want something better. They just don't have the tools or haven't had them previously to do that. And a lot of them have been let down in the past by tools that have been missold, you know, dated psychology tools that only take them so far and then it's a cul-de-sac and, you know? and yep. i see you know that for example last week we had an organization contact us who they've come bottom of their global employee engagement survey league in, okay and it's obviously a question for them around well what do we need to do now and it's it's always when there is a problem with the global employee engagement survey that you know yeah. that's a place to jump into an organization and you're quite right if, if an organization doesn't see the the opportunity in changing well then why get involved with that organization because they're not interested yeah. but yeah, you know yeah. the whole concept of employee engagement surveys and i know you're involved in the happiness index in in measuring happiness and performance and happiness yeah. to me is you know when i heard about the happiness index first i kind of said Jeez, this is all kind of nice, soft, and <laughs> beautiful type stuff. Hippie, yeah. but, you know, and, and, and almost it it, um, it goes against what it's what it's trying to do. But that mm. that word happiness and engagement. Talk to me about engagement surveys and your view of them and what they measure and what do we need to be measuring now in a more updated model for the future of work. 
Okay. Just before that, I do that, John, you made a, 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 a question about um, where do I start with the culture stuff? I'd just like to say there's only one place to start, and that's find out what people believe in. Hmm. It's all about belief, you know, because we far too often reference out, you know, what should we be thinking? What should we be doing? What, what my bosses want? What I've been told traditionally? You find out what people believe in, and there's a great commonality when you get there, because we all know what drives us. You know the opportunities to grow and to be motivated and there's enough room for sharing there so you have to find that out so coming back to your question then about engagement yeah so i understand the reference to happiness even though the brand has worked very well but think of it in terms of the science of happiness and then that stands to, to ground it a little bit more so you know we've split into happiness and engagement you know act as an advisor to the happiness index um, and I, I love what they do, and this is why I spend a lot of time with them, because they are taking some of the concepts that I've created and really running with them, because they believe in them totally, and they can see it working for their own organization. And it starts with this, you know, getting happiness on the agenda. It's not some secondary thing to be thought about in the pub afterwards. Happy human beings are more productive human beings. So the, the I would say that the challenge of an organization, therefore, is how do I get the most out of my people. And I, I know that's by creating a level of happiness, which is also productive. Okay. So you, you can be happy down the pub, right? Yeah. <laughs> as we know from our history. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can't go to the pub as often as we used to go to the pub. That's right. Exactly. Things. Unfortunately. Yeah. But in a business sense, <laughs> it's not always productive, right? So we don't want to be a club. We want to have something with a shared purpose. So engagement really is more about the thinking side of the brain it's more about the rational processes that we have and the reflective process when we engage you know our thoughts but then the happiness side is very much a subconscious phenomenon and it's about emotions and instincts so what we do therefore is ask questions that are specifically tailored to you know instinctive issues emotional issues rational issues and reflective issues and that then gives us data about the human blend itself you know so it tells us so keeping it as straightforward as possible my argument is particularly in these times of covid it is more important than ever to understand the emotional state of your business now in the past business you know, i can think of business leaders who would have shown me the door by now if i'd said that but they have no place in, in this world you know we are in a world where these things need to be understood people need to feel connected and they need to have to experience meaning. And that's how we get to those sorts of questions. We avoid the typical, um, you know, tick box types questions where organizations say, okay, as long as we go seven or eight out of 10, whatever it is, we move on, right? Yeah. Job done, let's move on. No, this is saying, hold on a minute. You know, <laughs> this is about really understanding that data, understanding where your people are at emotionally in their change journeys and what you can do in order to influence that in a positive way. And this is a game changer, especially with disconnected workforces working in remote and hybrid environments, where it yes. was never as important to ask that question, how are you feeling? And, and I mentioned that in, in an earlier podcast around the importance of asking that, and I learned that from the Happiness mm. Index, to ask my mm. team, how are you feeling? And I think that's Absolutely. such an important question that human yeah, yeah, yeah. beings want to, I suppose, explore that for themselves. Yes. But quite often the organization is asking this question, which is more task-focused or outcome-focused. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not judging people. It's what we were expected to do in the past. You know, it's like we didn't have the means of dealing with emotional issues. 
right? And this is not therapy, right? Because if we're talking about dealing with emotions in the right place, not when they become a problem, but our emotions drive us. You know, today's emotions are tomorrow's performance. You know, it, it drives us. And again, we can back the science up on that. So understanding where people are at with those challenges is vital to allowing them to grow and the organization to benefit from that. And especially with organizations at the moment who are in, you know, we have a global talent shortage and we are going to have a global talent shortage for a long time to come. And it is so important that people feel listened to and cared in organizations rather than feel that they've moved here to do your job and deliver productivity. And definitely what I've seen in the most recent past as a result of the lockdown and COVID is that the commute to work has been replaced by more productivity and more work. And we're putting ourselves under more pressure and stress. And I'm just, I suppose, from the point of view of individuals listening to this or HR leaders, what can we do to help people who are really struggling with resilience and coming to terms emotionally with the struggle of an extended period. You know, this could go on, um, or here in the country said at the weekend, this could go on for years. So, so I mean, it's, it's a really despair that, that I'm hearing from people as well, especially at this time of year when, we, when we're turning into a new year. We want to look forward to new hope in the future. So what do we do in those instances, Clive, from a resilience perspective? Right. So once again, John, I'm going to just challenge one thing you said, all right? And I know a lot of people will say there's a global talent shortage. There isn't. Okay. And that may sound a very strange answer because I totally get, you know, from the corporate world and the way we define the world now, absolutely, there is a global talent shortage. And we are um, chasing, you know, large organizations are chasing diminishing pools of talent. So I totally get what you're saying, right? And that's why some of them are having to wake up and think, oh God, we can't carry on with the old ways. But the reason I'm being, if you like, controversial about that statement is that there's no shortage of talent. Talent is just, we don't know how to develop it and we don't recognize it. And talent comes in many forms. You know, and actually there's an abundance of talent out there that is being wasted, you know, because of the organizations. You know, I almost saw them. You might think I'm passionate about this because of the organizations that we've built that deny talent. And I think the most productive um, path for those organizations is to look fundamentally again at how talent is developed in their business, how you access it, how you allow it to grow. You know, when we're in a natural state, which is what the whole quantum principle is about, we give so much more. And again, we can measure that, you know, our ability to process information, which drives, you know, um, focused behavior and all that type of stuff. So I say that in that, you know, slightly controversial way, because it's as big as that. We've got to rethink the way that we run organizations and allow them to be talent-driven, not organizational boxes, okay? And, and that's the tension, isn't it, between mm. the leadership team of an organization who are trying to hit quarterly targets and mm. develop talent. And everybody Absolutely. seems to be on the hamster wheel. So like mm. what you speak about trusted triangles and mentoring and coaching others, so we've got talented yep. people in our organization, but they don't seem to have Absolutely. the time to get that space to bring new talent through. And, and uh, so we have, yeah. sorry, I was going to say, so we have to look at those environments. You know, everything that we do is what, what do we do as, as people? How do we process information, et cetera, right? But it's also the environment we've created. You know, our brains, every second of the day are responding to those environments. 
So if we've created the environments that are, you know, at worst toxic, you know, or, or even neutral, they're not getting the best out of us. So I think a huge leadership task is how do we recreate environments that get the best out of people? And you can't do it overnight. It's not a quick fix. But having said that, once you start doing it, it becomes self-fulfilling. You know, it, it just takes off and becomes self-generating. That's the point. And it's like, yeah, but please, the message to HR directors, to leaders is find those opportunities to take those risks. Because actually, the risk is very small. You know, it's about trusting people. And people who you know, organize their practices on the basis of mistrust are missing so much, missing so much opportunity. And you're right, you know, it's, it, it re directly reflects some of the tension the, feel, the people feel because the rules are changing, yeah? We're in a hugely transitional phase. So we know what the past was like, and this is change curve stuff. You know, we've got that experience of the past that's still pulling us back and saying, oh, but you'll be checked or you'll be expected this or you'll be in trouble over that. But we haven't yet created what the future looks like. But we co-create that. You know, it's not for somebody to come in and say, this is it. It's, it's back to this question, what do you believe in? You know, and, and that organization... Yes, sorry, I'm off. That goes back to hierarchical <laughs> structures and people wanting the answer and wanting the quick fix and the task. And Absolutely. you and I are asked that question all the time. So how can you fix this problem versus Absolutely. how can we create a sustainable solution over a longer period of time, which will build that environment of trust? Yes. And just on that, then you speak about the quantum way, because I wanted to get yeah. to that. What is yeah, the yeah, quantum yeah. way and what does that look like if I'm an organization leader or a HR person listening to this? Yeah, and I, you know, I, I got to start with an apology, really, because I know the quantum label is a scary one, yeah. you know, um, and I get that. It's almost like I should have written a book that was called This is Not the Quantum Way <laughs> or something, not to scare people off, you know, but it is about quantum principles. And I want people to think beyond. I mentioned some physics in it. But that's only to just look. I'm really saying to people, look, I didn't dream this up. These are where these thought processes come from. But then having got to that point, it's all about understanding the principle, those principles that drive organizations. And understanding quantum principles is about understanding natural states, not only the way that humans behave, but also the way the universe behaves. So it's like the rules don't suddenly change. You know, what's going on out there in our environment? They're exactly the same rules that drive us, you know? So it's like when we understand ourselves in an environment and put those together, we can experience things like states of flow, you know, which I talk about in the book. Because the fundamental problem is we've been boxed off, you know, back to the factory units things. And actually, what we to be our best, we need to be in a state of flow. Whether that's a high-performance athlete, for instance, you know, a soldier, you know, in, in the zone, you know, in a harsh environment or a child at play that loses him or herself in the moment because they're just being, right? So this is all about understanding that and how we create the environments. So the quantum stuff is more about the environment we've created in order to get the best out of people. And it's not what we're doing now. And, you know, to bring that into the present day and the more challenged restrictions that we're facing, you, you know, we started off talking about humans and neuroscience and um, the brain, and we're finishing up talking about the quantum, you know, physics mm -hmm. side of things. How do we make that practical 
for somebody mm. listening today? And what might yeah. be a takeaway that people could take from this session to say, okay, what are a number of things that I can take into my organization from this session that uh, would be really, really practical and helpful right now? Yeah, and that's exactly what I've tried to do in the book, John. You know, there's a principle that the happiness thing that, you know, I've worked with quantum principles with quite a few organizations, but they're the nicest example because it's like it's the entire organization and it's all wrapped up in there and they believe in it so much. And I break it down into areas that are associated with culture, with organizational structure, and with the, the parts to pull all that together. It's, the principles are called Q9, okay? So we talk about things on the cultural side, like, you know, trust. How do you build trust? You know, being brave, you know, because we are exploratory. We are curious as, as human beings and about passion and belief. They're the cultural things, right? Under the structural side, we look at things like structures need to be light touch. Nobody's saying you shouldn't have structure, but what you don't want is hierarchy. And that'll scare people to death as well. But any time you know, someone with authority in a business relies on his hierarchical position for his authority, his or her authority, then they've already missed an opportunity. It's being the boss is not good enough, all right? It, that doesn't take people with you. So, and then there's things like embedded learning, okay? So, so that we get our learning the time we need it, not always as a classroom experience. So there's much more, again, you know, about having available facilitation learning, you know, reflective space and that type of stuff. So we, that's how our brain learns, you know, experientially is always the best way to learn. And then there are certain collaborative principles that pull that together, you know, which include things like, you know, building self-awareness, you know, so we're all more capable of understanding our own reactions, you know, and the impact that we have on others. And diversity would be in there as well. So there it's like breaking it down into, in this case, you know, nine themes that then become part of a way forward. But, you know, first and foremost, it's about trust, you know, and you cannot build trust without looking at the organization because the existing organizations are the complete anathema to trust. And that's where we have to start. So, but this is absolutely, you know, capable of being broken down. And that's where I, you know, that's the exact point that I'm at, I think, is to try and get over people's fears about some of the labels and just get starting stuck in. Because once you start with it, it feels so intuitive that people just run with it. And that's my advice to all organizations is, look, I'm going to give you these principles. You'll work out which ones resonate most for you and then go for it, right? Because there's no better way of learning than doing it yourselves. Come back to me and we'll keep checking in, Right. But I'm not going to come to you with the answers. I'm going to come to you with the insights and say, you find the mix that works best for you. You spoke um, when earlier on about what you believe in. And mm. Clive, you come across so passionately as someone who truly, truly believes in, yes. in this. And you believe in people. You believe in yeah. environments where people can thrive. And lastly, I suppose the impact on the planet, because I know you're hugely passionate about that as well, and how we as humans have maybe not been as kind to the planet as we should have been. You see, my driving force here is I've got grandkids, right? And I feel ashamed in many ways of, of, um, of what we've left for them. You know, it's, it's quite emotional, really. And it's like we have to now support younger people to create a successful transition, you know, and it's not just about the environment. Um, 
and my neuroscience angle is really about uh, understanding that if we're treating ourselves internally wrongly, we will treat our environments wrongly. We've treated our environments as property, something we can pick up and put down. It's actually our parent. You know, we can trace our e evolution back to that. You know, we, we our ability to see, for instance, goes right back to, you know, photosynthesis and plants, you know, converting light. Our neural networks in the brain started with fungi and mushrooms, you know, that learned to spread cells out and connect them in a certain way. Our ability to, to hear links to reptiles, you know, the, originally the jaw bones we used to feel in tremors in the earth, you know, so they could pick up on prey. And we developed from that to create something that could hear up here. So it's like, you know, how, how dare we dissociate ourselves and put ourselves in a position of supremacy over our environment when it has created us. So I think if we can change that relationship, you know, the great news beyond about this is that if we can get there and get people to understand this, when we take away all the barriers we've built and learned, we all want the same things. And I, and I see that time and time again. So it's like, let's understand our prejudices. Let's understand our judgments. Work hard at setting them aside and then say, now let's build the things that we all believe in. And I absolutely be, believe that's possible. And I, yes, I'm on a mission to do what I can to support that. And I suppose what you're describing there is, you know, us human beings, we can create toxic environments at work or we can create a absolutely. toxic planet uh, that we live in. Exactly that. I think the great thing is, and for your grandkids and for my daughter coming through, I think there's a greater awareness now of what's required in that generation yes. to solve maybe yes. some of the ills that uh, we might have left them from our generation. Yes, absolutely. And I think, I, you know, I still have a huge belief in human um, ingenuity. And, but it's such a critical time, you know, when you get into the discussions around AI and, and biotechnology and all that stuff. Whoa, you know, evolution is going to go at such a speed. If we don't get this right, things are going to be very, very tricky. And the whole definition of humanity will change. So it's like, let's get everyone informed around this and get them collaborating so that the right people, you know, power and influence sits for the right people, the people who care, not the people who want to control. So that's the great hope for the future Absolutely. that we don't end on a negative yeah. side, that there are people yes. who hopefully will rise to the top, who, who care for others Absolutely. and care for the environment. Yeah, look after them and care, care for them because we need those leaders. So finally, Clive, uh, some quick fire questions for you. Yeah. Uh, a book you most recommend, apart from your own, that you've read? Cool. You see, the challenge with neuroscience is like, it's not down to one book. It's like, if you wanted me to recommend a book on psychology, and it's just about psychology, you sort of think, well, where the hell do I start, right? So there are different ones. Um, I would recommend, there's a guy called V.S. Ramachandran. You can look that up. And he, he wrote a book called The Telltale Brain. Uh, I like that because it's very modern science, but reliable and quite nicely um, narrated. So that's just an example. But you know, if you do end up getting my books, you'll see certain um, references in the past to, you know, wider recommendations. You may have an interest in sleep or your know, gender or you know yeah. trauma, and it tries to give recommendations against that. Excellent. A podcast that you listen to. Um, I, to be honest, it's right across the piece for me. I don't think there's one because I get, I'm lucky to be a part of different networks and I get sent material, you know, so I keep delving in. 
Um, and obviously that can be neuroscience, it can be a bit of physics as well. Um, I think if anyone's interested in trying to break down their barriers on the uh, physics world, the quantum stuff, um, there's a guy called David Bohm that was incredibly um, important character and did some work, including with Einstein and people like that. There's a film, I think it's Potential of Life, it's called, on YouTube. I mean, that's if you want to try and grapple with that stuff. You know, listening to a film is a little bit easier sometimes yeah, than, um, yeah. than getting into too heavy into a book. <laughs> and uh, the best advice you were ever given in your life? Oh, um, right. So... As always with these things, don't they? they go back to your parents. And I think me as my mum, she was the big shaper in my life. My dad was the nice guy, you know, the nurturing guy. I was very lucky with my parents. Um, and I think she said a lot of things that didn't help me. <laughs> <laughs> like, God is always watching you. I don't think he'd want to watch everything I do. <laughs> um, but it was well intended. But I think it was just, you know, you can only do your best. You know, and it's she was a big driver, but she wanted to look after me as well. And I would now paraphrase that and say, only do your best. I think that's a fantastic line to leave us with at the end of the podcast. <laughs> we can only do our best live and Absolutely. we can't yeah. beat ourselves up as we talked about yeah. perfection and so on and so yeah. forth. We can only be our best, uh, do our best. Yeah. So thanks a million for joining me, Clive, on the podcast today. Yeah. And uh, for someone who was uh, speaking about retiring a number of years ago, this man <laughs> is incredibly passionate about what he speaks about. And uh, uh, spending an hour in your time is always a learning experience. So thanks a million, Clive, and look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Thanks, John. That's been brilliant. And uh, I suppose before I learn to retire, I'm going to have to learn to shut up. Uh, and that's a little while off yet. <laughs> So all the best to you. And I hope this podcast, you know, helps with what you're trying to do. Thanks for listening to The Core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.